This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter. April 2007. Summer by Edith Wharton. Chapter 9. Charity sat before the mirror, trying on a hat which Allie Hawes, with much secrecy, had trimmed for her. It was of white straw, with a drooping brim and cherry-colored lining that made her face glow like the inside of the shell on the parlor mantelpiece. She propped the square of looking-glass against Mr. Royal's black leather Bible, steadying it in front with a white stone on which a view of the Brooklyn Bridge was painted, and she sat before her reflection, bending the brim this way and that, while Allie Hawes's pale face looked over her shoulder like the ghost of wasted opportunities. "'I look awful, don't I?' she said at last with a happy sigh. Allie smiled and took back the hat. "'I'll stitch the roses on right here, so you can put it away at once.' Charity laughed and ran her fingers through her rough, dark hair. She knew that Harney liked to see its reddish edges, ruffled about her forehead and breaking into little rings at the nape. She sat down on her bed and watched Allie stoop over the hat with a careful frown. "'Don't you ever feel like going to Nettleton for a day?' she asked. Allie shook her head without looking up. "'No. I always remember that awful time I went down with Julia to that doctor's. Oh, Allie! I can't help it. The house is on the corner of Wing Street and Lake Avenue. The trolley from the station goes right by it and the day the minister took us down to see those pictures I recognized it right off and couldn't seem to see anything else. There's a big black sign with gold letters all across the front, private consultations. She came as near as anything to dying. Poor Julia! Charity sighed from the height of her purity and her security. She had a friend whom she trusted and who respected her. She was going with him to spend the next day, the Fourth of July, at Nettleton, Whose business was it but hers, and what was the harm? The pity of it was that girls like Julia did not know how to choose, and to keep bad fellows at a distance. Charity slipped down from the bed, and stretched out her hands. "'Is it sewed? Let me try it on again.' She put the hat on, and smiled at her image. The thought of Julia had vanished. The next morning she was up before dawn, and saw the yellow sunrise broaden behind the hills, and the silvery lustre preceding a hot day tremble across the sleeping fields. Her plans had been made with great care. She had announced that she was going down to the Band of Hope picnic at Hepburn, and as no one else from North Dormer intended to venture so far, it was not likely that her absence from the festivity would be reported. Besides, if it were, she would not greatly care. She was determined to assert her independence, and if she stooped to fib about the Hepburn picnic, it was chiefly from the secretive instinct that made her dread the profanation of her happiness. Whenever she was with Lucius Harney, she would have liked some impenetrable mountain mist to hide her. It was arranged that she should walk to a point of the Creston Road where Harney was to pick her up and drive her across the hills to Hepburn in time for the 9.30 train to Nettleton. Harney at first had been rather lukewarm about the trip. He declared himself ready to take her to Nettleton, but urged her not to go on the 4th of July, on account of the crowds, the probable lateness of the trains, the difficulty of her getting back before night. But her evident disappointment caused him to give way, and even to affect a faint enthusiasm for the adventure. 
She understood why he was not more eager. He must have seen sights beside which even a Fourth of July at Nettleton would seem tame. But she had never seen anything, and a great longing possessed her to walk the streets of a big town on a holiday, clinging to his arm, and jostled by idle crowds in their best clothes. The only cloud on the prospect was the fact that the shops would be closed, but she hoped he would take her back another day, when they were open. She started out unnoticed in the early sunlight, slipping through the kitchen while Verena bent above the stove. To avoid attracting notice, she carried her new hat carefully wrapped up, and had thrown a long grey veil of Mrs. Royal's over the new white muslin dress which Allie's clever fingers had made for her. All of the ten dollars Mr. Royal had given her, and a part of her own savings as well, had been spent on renewing her wardrobe, and when Harney jumped out of the buggy to meet her, she read her reward in his eyes. The freckled boy who had brought her the note two weeks earlier was to wait with the buggy at Hepburn till their return. He perched at Charity's feet, his legs dangling between the wheels, and they could not say much because of his presence. But it did not greatly matter, for their past was now rich enough to have given them a private language, and with the long day stretching before them like the blue distance beyond the hills, there was a delicate pleasure in postponement. When Charity, in response to Harney's message, had gone to meet him at the Creston Pool, her heart had been so full of mortification and anger that his first words might easily have estranged her. But it happened that he had found the right word, which was one of simple friendship. His tone had instantly justified her, and put her guardian in the wrong. He had made no allusion to what had passed between Mr. Royal and himself, but it simply let it appear that he had left because means of conveyance were hard to find at North Dormer, and because Creston River was a more convenient centre. He told her that he had hired by the week the buggy of the freckled boy's father, who served as livery stable-keeper to one or two melancholy summer boarding-houses on Creston Lake, and had discovered within driving distance a number of houses worthy of his pencil, and he said that he could not, while he was in the neighbourhood, give up the pleasure of seeing her as often as possible. When they took leave of each other, she promised to continue to be his guide, and during the fortnight which followed they roamed the hills in happy comradeship. In most of the village friendships between youths and maidens, lack of conversation was made up for by tentative fondling. But Harney, except when he had tried to comfort her in her trouble on their way back from the Hyatts, had never put his arm about her, or sought to betray her into any sudden caress. It seemed to be enough for him to breathe her nearness like a flower's, and since his pleasure at being with her, and his sense of her youth and her grace, perpetually shone in his eyes, and softened the inflection of his voice, his reserve did not suggest coldness, but the deference due to a girl of his own class. The buggy was drawn by an old trotter, who whirled them along so briskly that the pace created a little breeze, but when they reached Hepburn the full heat of the airless morning descended on them. At the railway station the platform was packed with a sweltering throng, and they took refuge in the waiting-room, where there was another throng, already dejected by the heat, and the long waiting for the retarded trains. Pale mothers were struggling with fretful babies, or trying to keep their older offspring from the fascination of the track. Girls and their fellows were giggling and shoving, and passing about candy and sticky bags, and older men, collarless and perspiring, were shifting heavy children from one arm to the other, 
and keeping a haggard eye on the scattered members of their families. At last the train rumbled in and engulfed the waiting multitude. Harney swept Charity up onto the first car, and they captured a bench for two, and sat in happy isolation, while the train swayed and roared along through rich fields and languid tree clumps. The haze of the morning had become a sort of clear tremor over everything, like the colorless vibration about a flame, and the opulent landscape seemed to droop under it. But to Charity the heat was a stimulant. It enveloped the whole world in the same glow that burned at her heart. Now and then a lurch of the train flung her against Harney, and through her thin muslin she felt the touch of his sleeve. She steadied herself, their eyes met, and the flaming breath of the day seemed to enclose them. The train roared into the Nettleton station, the descending mob caught them on its tide, and they were swept out into a vague, dusty square thronged with seedy hacks and long, curtained omnibuses, drawn by horses with tasseled fly-nets over their withers, who stood swinging their depressed heads drearily from side to side. A mob of bus and hack-drivers were shouting, "'To the Eagle House! To the Washington House! This way to the lake! Just starting for Greytop!' And through their yells came the popping of firecrackers, the explosion of torpedoes, the banging of toy guns, and the crash of a fireman's band trying to play the merry widow while they were being packed into a wagonette, streaming with bunting. The ramshackle wooden hotels about the square were all hung with flags and paper lanterns, and as Harney and Charity turned into the main street, with its brick and granite business blocks crowding out the old low-storied shops, and its towering poles strung with innumerable wires that seemed to tremble and buzz in the heat, they saw the double line of flags and lanterns tapering away gaily to the park at the other end of the perspective. The noise and color of this holiday vision seemed to transform Nettleton into a metropolis. Charity could not believe that Springfield or even Boston had anything grander to show, and she wondered if, at this very moment, Annabel Balch, on the arm of his brilliant a young man, were threading her way through scenes as resplendent. "'Where shall we go first? Harney asked, but as she turned her happy eyes on him he guessed the answer and said, "'We'll take a look round, shall we?' The street swarmed with their fellow-travellers, with other excursionists, arriving from other directions, with Nettleton's own population, and with the mill-hands trooping in from the factories on the Creston. The shops were closed, but one would scarcely have noticed it, so numerous were the glass doors swinging open on saloons, on restaurants, on drug stores gushing from every soda-water tap, on fruit and confectionery shops stacked with strawberry cake, coconut drops, trays of glistening molasses candy, boxes of caramels and chewing-gum, baskets of sodden strawberries, and dangling branches of bananas. Outside of some of the doors were trestles with banked-up oranges and apples, spotted pears and dusty raspberries, and the air reeked with the smell of fruit and stale coffee, beer and sarsaparilla and fried potatoes. Even the shops that were closed offered, through wide expanses of plate glass, hints of hidden riches. In some, waves of silk and ribbon broke over shores of imitation moss from which ravishing hats rose like tropical orchids. In others, the pink throats of gramophones opened their giant convolutions in a soundless chorus, or bicycles, shining in neat ranks, seemed to await the signal of an invisible starter, or tiers of fancy goods in leatherette and paste and celluloid 
dangled their insidious graces, and, in one vast bay that seemed to project them into exciting contact with the public, wax ladies in daring dresses chatted elegantly, or, with gestures intimate yet blameless, pointed to their pink corsets and transparent hosiery. Presently Harney found that his watch had stopped, and turned in at a small jeweler's shop which chanced to still be open. While the watch was being examined, Charity leaned over the glass counter, where, on a background of dark blue velvet, pins, rings, and brooches glittered like the moon and stars. She had never seen jewellery so nearby, and she longed to lift the glass lid and plunge her hand among the shining treasures. But already Harney's watch was repaired, and he laid his hand on her arm and drew her from her dream. "'Which do you like best?' he asked, leaning over the counter at her side. I don't know. She pointed to a gold lily of the valley with white flowers. Don't you think the blue pins better? he suggested, and immediately she saw that the lily of the valley was mere trumpery compared to the small round stone, blue as a mountain lake, with little sparkles of light all round it. She colored at her want of discrimination. It's so lovely. I guess I was afraid to look at it, she said. He laughed and they went out of the shop, but a few steps away he exclaimed, "'Oh, by Jove, I forgot something!' and turned back and left her in the crowd. She stood staring down a row of pink gramophone throats till he rejoined her, and slipped his arm through hers. "'You mustn't be afraid of looking at the blue pin any longer, because it belongs to you,' he said, and she felt a little box being pressed into her hand. Her heart gave a leap of joy, but it reached her lips only in a shy stammer. She remembered other girls whom she had heard planning to extract presents from their fellows, and was seized with a sudden dread lest Harney should have imagined that she had leaned over the pretty things in the glass case in the hope of having one given to her. A little farther down the street they turned in at a glass doorway opening on a shining hall with a mahogany staircase and brass cages in its corners. "'We must have something to eat,' Harney said and the next moment Charity found herself in a dressing-room, all looking glass and lustrous surfaces, where a party of showy-looking girls were dabbing on powder and straightening immense plumed hats. When they had gone she took courage to bathe her hot face in one of the marble basins, and to straighten her own hat-brim, which the parasols of the crowd had indented. The dresses in the shops had so impressed her that she scarcely dared look at her reflection, but when she did so, the glow of her face under her cherry-coloured hat, and the curve of her young shoulders through the transparent muslin, restored her courage, and when she had taken the blue brooch from its box and pinned it on her bosom, she walked through the restaurant with her head high, as if she had always strolled through tessellated halls beside young men in flannels. Her spirit sank a little at the sight of the slim-waisted waitresses in black, with bewitching mob-caps on their haughty heads, who were moving disdainfully between the tables. Not for another hour, one of them dropped to Harney in passing, and he stood doubtfully glancing about them. Oh, well, we can't stay sweltering here, he decided. Let's try somewhere else. And with a sense of relief, Charity followed him from that scene of inhospitable splendor. That somewhere else turned out, after more hot tramping and several failures, to be of all things a little open-air place in a back street that called itself a French restaurant, and consisted in two or three rickety tables under a scarlet runner 
between a patch of zinnias and petunias, and a big elm bending over from the next yard. Here they lunched on queerly flavored things, while Harney, leaning back in a crippled rocking-chair, smoked cigarettes between the courses, and poured into Charity's glass a pale yellow wine, which he said was the very same one drank in just such jolly places in France. Charity did not think the wine as good as sarsaparilla, but she sipped a mouthful for the pleasure of doing what he did, and of fancying herself alone with him in foreign countries. The illusion was increased by their being served by a deep-bosomed woman with smooth hair and a pleasant laugh, who talked to Harney in unintelligible words, and seemed amazed and overjoyed at his answering her in kind. At the other tables other people sat, mill-hands probably, homely but pleasant-looking, who spoke the same shrill jargon, and looked at Harney and Charity with friendly eyes, and between the table-legs a poodle with bald patches and pink eyes nosed about for scraps, and sat up on his hind legs absurdly. Harney showed no inclination to move, for hot as their corner was, it was at least shaded and quiet, and from the main thoroughfares came the clanging of trolleys, the incessant popping of torpedoes, the jingle of street-organs, the bawling of megaphone men, and the loud murmur of increasing crowds. He leaned back, smoking his cigar, patting the dog, and stirring the coffee that steamed in their chipped cups. "'It's the real thing, you know,' he explained, and Charity hastily revised her previous conception of the beverage. They had made no plans for the rest of the day, and when Harney asked her what she wanted to do next, she was too bewildered by rich possibilities to find an answer." Finally she confessed that she longed to go to the lake, where she had not been taken on her former visit, and when he answered, "'Oh, there's time for that. It will be pleasanter later,' she suggested seeing some pictures like the ones Mr. Miles had taken her to. She thought Harney looked a little disconcerted, but he passed his fine handkerchief over his warm brow, said gaily, "'Come along, then,' and rose with the last pat for the pink-eyed dog." Mr. Miles's pictures had been shown in an austere Y.M.C.A. hall, with white walls and an organ, but Harney led Charity to a glittering place, everything she saw seemed to glitter, where they passed, between immense pictures of yellow-haired beauties, stabbing villains in evening dress, into a velvet-curtained auditorium packed with spectators, to the last limit of compression. After that, for a while, Everything was merged in her brain in swimming circles of heat and blinding alternations of light and darkness. All the world has to show seemed to pass before her in a chaos of palms and minarets, charging cavalry regiments, roaring lions, comic policemen, and scowling murderers, and the crowd around her, the hundreds of hot, sallow, candy-munching faces, young, old, middle-aged, but all kindled with the same contagious excitement became part of the spectacle, and danced on the screen with the rest. Presently the thought of the cool trolley run to the lake grew irresistible, and they struggled out of the theatre. As they stood on the pavement, Harney pale with the heat, and even Charity a little confused by it, a young man drove in an electric runabout with a calico band bearing the words, Ten dollars to take you round the lake. Before Charity knew what was happening, Harney had waved a hand, and they were climbing in. "'Save for twenty-five, I'll run you out to see the ball-game and back,' the driver proposed with an insinuating grin. But Charity said quickly, "'Oh, I'd rather go rowing on the lake.' The street was so thronged that progress was slow, 
but the glory of sitting in the little carriage while it wriggled its way between laden omnibuses and trolleys made the moments seem too short. "'Next turn is Lake Avenue,' the young man called out over his shoulder, and as they paused in the wake of a big omnibus groaning with knights of Pythias in cocked hats and swords, Charity looked up and saw in the corner a brick house with a conspicuous black and gold sign across its front. "'Dr. Merkel, private consultations at all hours, lady attendance,' she read, and suddenly she remembered Ali Hawes's words. The house was at the corner of Wing Street and Lake Avenue. There's a big black sign across the front. Through all the heat and the rapture, a shiver of cold ran over her. End of chapter 9